Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and our word on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Hey, welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren, of course. Now, uh, joining me today for the interview, uh, we have uh, John Robb for Suspense Magazine. How are you doing today, John? Oh, hey, thanks so much for having me on. I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Just finished a book, and uh, it's an edit now, so <laughs> it's a stress. Oh, that's time. always a fun time. <laughs> yeah, that's the worst time. That is the worst time. Uh, some of those well, editors. You know, for, well, for some authors, it's the fun time. Like, they love the edits. Like, they love to get into edits. They sit there, and they're like, I can't wait to get my edits and the get my edits and I'm all excited and then some people dread them. So it just depends. Me, I always kind of look at it like my junior year English teacher when I was actually in a mystery and suspense class and she, it was all read on the paper. And my first words out of my mouth was, did you menstruate on my paper? Yeah. And after that point, I was not very popular in her eyes. No, no, you're asking for it. Boy. So, that was, that, was, that was my start to mystery and suspense as a junior in high school. Uh, you know, I but I hate the edit part because, um, yeah, it's it's kind of like being judged, and it shouldn't. I shouldn't feel that way, but that's how I feel. No, yeah. Oh, I get you. I get you. You spend all that time doing something, and then you have somebody coming back saying, "Well, this is a mistake, and this is a mistake." But sometimes it's really good because you need to have those. Like you know. Uh, I see it all the time when people send in stories or they send in manuscripts for us to publish that we'll see. And they'll always have things that are missing threads that they've dropped in or things that they've dropped in and they've just kind of forgotten about. And it's like, no, you can't do that. You got to kind of get those things up. And sometimes they just over their head, you know, you just, yeah. just don't know. Well, you know, but I, I think 
the important part of the story is the story itself, right? Uh, uh, not so much the yeah. uh, the literary part of it. And so, you know, because I deal in true crime and I deal in, in kind of the facts and what goes on and, and there's some mm -hmm. comment on it. But for the most part, I, I'm just telling it how it is. Um, but, um, right. so, you know, sometimes the editors are, you know, uh, I'm complaining. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what Not goes on? No, but what goes on? So now on Suspense Magazine, um, you take articles from people. Is that how it works? Well, so Suspense Magazine, I mean, we basically take articles. We take short stories. You know, if things want to write, if people want to write, authors want to write, they want to see something and they want to get it out. Yeah, they can easily just submit it over to us. They can email us at editor at suspensemagazine.com. We look at everything because we love the content. Uh, so absolutely, it, people can send in those, those kinds of things all the time. So where did the idea come for um, for the magazine? Where did it come from? Well, that's funny. Uh, well, that's a funny story. Actually, we were sitting. I was sitting in bed one night with my wife, and she's a huge reader. Um, she's probably read seven, eight thousand books in her lifetime. She read all the time. I mean, she just reads all the time. And we would always go to Barnes and Noble. And Barnes and Noble, uh, before we got into this. You know, they would always have the front display. You would see the same authors like over and over. You kind of go back in the stacks. You're not really sure who to get. And so I was like, well, let's look. I'm, go I'm sure somebody has something out there. We can find some new authors. And I found myself going to like all these different websites, like 50 to 60 to try to find something. So I sat down and you know what? I said, we should build something that kind of puts everything in one area so people can only, you know, go to one place to find new authors, to find new books and to find new things. And that's kind of where it happened was um, where Suspense Magazine came from. I mean, it was a magazine back in the 20s, and then it kind of revised itself a little in the 30s and then the 50s. And then it just kind of sat there and didn't do anything. And uh, the website was open, and I just grabbed it, and we just kept it. So we've kind of kept it going the longest of any running Suspense Magazine in the past, but we're not associated with anything in the past. Just the name in general, we've had it running for the longest time now. So what do you think? Um, so how do you think that is? It, it, and and how is the publishing world different now? And well, we know how it's different, but do you like the way the publishing world's going or not? Well, we also have a publishing company called Suspense Publishing, um, where actually in November we're putting out an anthology called Nothing Good Happens After Midnight, which is with Jeffrey Deaver, but it also has authors in it like Linwood Barkley and Reese Bowen and Heather Graham, Alan Jacobson. Uh, we got a whole bunch of authors in there. We got 13 of them. And so that's what we kind of did the publishing side, what we have going on. As far as like what we see with the magazine, the publishing, it is a little bit on the different side than when we first started out because eBooks were just coming up. They were just starting to come out. You just started kind of seeing people bringing that stuff out, but you really weren't sure what they were because there wasn't really a lot of readers and, the only one was really Kindle, and then Barnes Noble tried to get in. But it's a weird time because I always kind of associate it to music. I use music a lot in my analogies because music and books kind of parallel themselves. It's just that music kind of started it before books did with like the pirating and things. But you can, anybody today can write a book, which is a good thing, but it's also a bad thing because anybody can write a book. So as a reader, you're going out there and you're searching on Amazon and you're looking for eBooks and you're looking for something to read. You're going to find a lot of free books. You're going to find a lot of things. But the problem is, is you're not going to find what we were just talking about at the beginning. You're going to have to look to make sure that were these books edited 
because the one main problem that self-published authors have are they don't edit. They don't either. I've had people say they don't believe in it. I've had people say, oh, my mom read it and thinks it's great. Well, you're not. I've had people, you know, say, well, I've had beta, you know, beta readers read it and they think it's wonderful. I'm like, yeah, they're your friends. You need to find an editor that you're paying that doesn't really know you and has no problem in telling you whether your book is good or bad or not and what you need to do to fix it. That's where you have, that's where an editor, a really good editor comes in. And a lot of people either they don't want to spend the money, which means to me, writing is a business. And if you're an author, it's your business. And you're either in it to sell books and make money or you're in it as a hobby. If you're in it as a hobby, then yeah, you might going to spend the money and probably get it edited and just throw it out there and see what happens. If it's a business, you have to invest in yourself. Everybody will tell you from Bill Gates to Warren Buffett, whoever you want to listen to, investing in yourself is probably the number one greatest thing to do. So if you really want to treat it like a business, you have to have a business plan. You got to sit out there. I need to get it edited. How am I going to market? How are you going to do certain things? Because writing the book is the easy part. The hard part today is getting someone to read it and buy it. And that's where you should focus a lot of efforts uh, aside from outside of writing the book. That's how publishing has changed a lot. When you have authors like, you know, Sandra Brown uh, and, you know, what Lee, you know, like what Lee Child would do or Jeffrey Deaver or all these, you know, they're all out there self-promoting themselves. Uh, they don't have a lot of backing behind publishing houses because to pull the curtain back when we found out is Barnes and Noble, when you go in, all that stuff that you see at the front, that's all paid. Right. Publishers pay to have those books up there. Well, why do they do that? Well, because you're going to buy Jeffrey Deaver. You're going to buy Clive Cussler. You're going to buy James Patterson. They need to make their money. So they put those books out front where you're not going to have is let's go find Al Warren. Let's go find John Robb. Well, I always tell people when they're like, well, you know, I want my book in print and I want to get it in Barnes and Noble. And I said, that's great. But here's the thing. How often do you walk into a Barnes and Noble and walk around for an hour and a half looking at every book and searching the back to try to find authors? You don't because it's a lot of time. You kind of let Barnes and Noble tell you the things and you pick up the books and you find them and you won't go to the ones in the table. But we're going to end up in the stacks in the back. And that's what we need to find. So I, I try to tell people, if your book is printed, that's wonderful. But in today's day and age, if you really want to make a business, the best way to do it is the e-books. And you need to market that way. You need to market electronically. You need to get your name out there because you're not going to do it by doing book tours. You can do some on conventions, but a lot of those don't have a lot of fans. It's just a lot of other authors. Other authors are not really readers. They want you to buy their book. That doesn't mean they're going to buy your book. You need to find fans. So that's the hardest part of what I see in publishing nowadays, of course, is marketing. That's the million-dollar question. How do you get somebody to buy your book? And the problem is no one has the million-dollar answer. Otherwise, we don't be millionaires. Right. So that's kind of where we're sitting right now. Yeah, well, but 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 then. So, what do you think is good marketing? Uh, you know, electronically. I, I've I've done all sorts myself. Anything. Oh, anything. You think anything? It all helps. Anything. As long as people see your name, people have to see your name and see who you are. You're going to have to go to different sites. You're going to have to do different things. You know, when your book, if you're a new author. Um, you know, you, you send in your edits, you do your book, and then it's going to sit there for six to eight months while the publisher is getting everything ready. That's your time to start marketing. That's your time to start getting out there and getting fans and finding groups of people that are in the same, you know, kind of genre that you're in, finding people that read books, going out there and getting your name and talking and saying, this is what I wrote and this is what it is. 
I mean, I've interviewed Anne Rice, uh, and she told me, you know, interview with a vampire didn't hit until like 18 to 24 months after it was out. She had no idea. She almost never wrote again. And then all of a sudden, it was this swell of this cult, this underground, and all of a sudden, they realized that, you know, it was a popular book, and then it went mainstream. But that doesn't, so that's why you kind of have to be patient, too. Not everybody's going to be Lee Child, not everybody's going to be Stephen King, not everybody's going to be Dean Koontz. Not everybody's going to be, you know, Metallica either. So you, you have you have layers that are going in there. But if your goal is to make money at this, you have to market. I mean, everybody knows Coca-Cola. Everybody knows McDonald's. Everybody knows Nike. But what do they still do? They continually always market. So you always see them, even though you already know Coca-Cola. Like, you, you don't need to see another Coca-Cola commercial to know what they already taste like but they're continually in your face and they're continually saying, bye, 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 bye. And you're in your store and you're like, Oh, Coca-Cola. And you kind of pick it up. Just not even thinking about it. That's kind of what you have to think about when you're an author and when you're marketing is you're selling yourself with your story. And that's kind of where people are, especially in today's social media. People like to know what kind of food are you eating? What, what's going on with your pet? What pictures are you taking? You know, things like that. So you always have to give them that humorous approach so they kind of have an idea of who you are. And then, quite frankly, you have to have some luck, but you have to write a kick-butt book. Because if you don't have a kick-butt book, then it's going to just probably die on the vine. Right, right. Or you'll get bad feedback. Right. Bad, bad and then you're going to be – and then you'll be all upset, and then you'll probably stop, and then you'll probably quit, and then you'll never write again. And that's not what you want. The other thing I will tell people too: do not, whatever you do, do not read your Amazon reviews. Do not go on there every time and check your ranking. Do not go on there and sit there and, and, and think about your reviews and whatnot, because it will make you absolutely bonkers if you do that. <laughs> so don't do that. Don't sit there and keep wandering. Wonder. Just keep getting your name and just keep going and going and going and going. And you know, you'll be successful if you write good books people will find you. If you make good music, people will listen. It's just a matter of you have to just keep doing it. So, so keep plugging it, away. Yeah, so it's branding. Um, so what do, you, yeah. what do you think about joining groups and stuff and, and submitting for awards and things like that? Um, it seems that's kind a of, funny. That's a funny question. Well, it seems kind of clicky. It's a funny question you bring up awards. It's a funny question you bring up awards because we <laughs> talk about this on our radio show sometimes. Because uh, we have a show, because I, I do an interview show on Suspense Radio. You can find it on iTunes and Spotify. And um, my co-host, Jeff Benares, and I, you know, we interview authors all the time. And we talk about awards in one time because do awards actually sell books? And we talked with um, author Adrian McKenzie. We talked with him an hour after he found out that he just got over a million dollar deal for his book, The Chain, for the movie. So it was a pretty exciting time. But this man had quit writing, became an Uber driver, and he had won the Seamus, he had won an Edgar, and he had won all these awards, and he wasn't selling. And he was like, these awards mean nothing to me because it doesn't sell, so it doesn't make a difference. So then you start thinking, do awards sell books? And the short answer that we kind of found out is, really not. It makes you feel good, you won an award, you're a winner, you're a Seamus winner, you're an Edgar winner, you win the Crimson Scribe from Suspense Magazine, but is it going to sell books? It probably will not 
sell you one extra copy, but it's going to make you feel really good. Reviews will make you sell books and people talking about it. But no one really in reviews is ever going to sit there and say, oh, so-and-so won an award for his last book. I don't think I've ever seen that in a review, ever. And that's kind of what people read. So, uh, you know, I, I don't, you know, we submit our stuff because our authors like it. Um, you know, the things that I write or whatnot, I don't submit to awards because I don't write for awards. You know, I don't write to win awards. I don't write to do those things. And so I don't care about awards in general. But that's just me. Um, but really, it's uh, joining groups is always a good thing. You, you can never join too many groups to have too many people. Because what you're going to end up doing is, let's say you join 10, you're probably only going to really worry about two or three when you see how active they are. And the other ones will probably go away. So I always say, don't say no to anybody. Like if, if it's an interview or if somebody wants to talk to you or to write something for you, new, say yes. Say yes and do it because that's how you get seen on other people's blogs and websites and things of those nature. And more eyes is the best. That's all you can hope for is just more, more, more eyes. Yeah. More exposure. Uh, what do you look yeah. for? What do you look for in a, in a, in an article or a story? What, what's important to you? Well, if you're talking about like an article, I like it to be clean, concise. I don't, we don't want it to be so well, for this, I don't want anything political. I want. I don't want to care about your political views. I could give two craps who you vote for, who you support. I do not care. So don't put that in articles because it means nothing to me. But when you sit there and you talk about something relevant in the book world, and it's, you know, is, is it well written? Does it have a good message? Is it helpful in some ways? Because we're here to help. We're not here to bash which is why we never give negative reviews for books. We just simply tell the publisher, sorry, we cannot review this. So all the books that you see in our magazine, we pretty much call them book recommendations because those are books that we said, yes, we like, and here's the review of it. And it's something that if you're in this genre, you should probably read because it's not up to me. I don't feel that someone took a year, two, three years out of their life to write a book. And then I'm going to sit here and read it and say, oh, this book is crap and you shouldn't read it and blah, blah, blah. Who am I to do that to you? I'm one person. So if I don't enjoy it or if I don't, if it's something that's not for me, I'll just say it's simply not for me. And I'll tell the publisher because someone else is going to like it. Someone else might like it and someone else might say something about it. But I don't think it's me to try to hurt somebody's career or to hurt somebody's, you know, sales or feelings by giving them a negative review of something they spent a long time on. Someone liked it published it and put it out there and then I'm going to slam it. That's not for me. I don't do that. I don't do that at all. And we will never do that. But what we, what we liked in short stories too, and manuscripts is it's got to be edited. The number one thing we do not get is edited work. Do not get it. I'm on sites and I've told people and I'm like for publishing and I'm like, look, when you send it to me, you got to send it edited, have it edited. And they're like, we don't have to edit it. If we get a book deal, then you're just going to give us an editor. And I'm like, yeah, you ain't going to get a book deal because your book sucks because it ain't edited. That's your problem. That's why you keep getting turned down and then you end up self-publishing and you have 100 rejection letters and you wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> because you didn't edit your book. You know, you get turned down 100 times. It's probably you at this point and not the publishers. Just yeah. saying. Just saying. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, um, you know, I complained about the mm -hmm. editing, but it's, it's very important. Um, oh because, yeah. Cause I'm only 
so good. And, and, and a lot of times they check out a lot of things and can find uh, a mistake, you know, uh, it's something minor, but it's important. True. And then whatever it is, it's good. Because again, fans will find the weirdest things in the book that you had no idea. If you mentioned something was red and chopped on, on page 10, and then on page 280, you mentioned that it was green. Guess what? They're going to find it and they're going to call you or they're going to email you and they're going to say, why was it red? And then it was green. We don't know what happened. What would you do? And you're going to be like, oh my God, I cannot believe I messed that up. But sometimes things are so right in front of the author's face that you can't see it. And, it, and, and the other thing too is, and this is a big thing, sometimes it might make sense to you, but that's because I'm not in your brain. So you need to have it make sense to me by writing the words correctly. Because some people will say, well, that's not what I meant. And I'm like, but that's what you said. It's like, yeah, but I meant this. I'm like, yeah, but that's not what you said. How am I supposed to know that? <laughs> so I always say, I can't read your brain. So tell me what you want me to know. Don't have me try to guess because I don't want to guess. And that's another big thing that we kind of see too is people be like, yeah, but, you know, that's not what I wanted. And I'm like, well, that's what you wrote. <laughs> you know, you kind think, of get an idea of what you write. Do you think that the um... – I don't know. How do you say this? Do you think that the uh, literary um, quality has gone down? Do you think people don't take it as serious? Uh, you know, I say that because, you know, you look at the 100%. Textbook. I just had this conversation with my wife the other day because she's a big literary person. She's, the book has to be, you know, a comma, this, and everything has to be right. And I'm like, I go, people do not care today. They just want a good story. Fifty Shades of Grey was one of the worst written books ever. Right. It was terrible. And sold copies. Why? Because people wanted the story. If you missed a comma, nobody's going to say, oh, my God, why wow, this sentence is all messed up because there's no comma here. They're just going to keep reading it. I mean, you know, it, there's other books that have been badly that are very, very popular. I, I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'll call people out. I don't care. <laughs> you know, I, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, James Patterson is not a great writer. He's just a good storyteller. Okay. I mean, Lee Child is a great storyteller. I mean, it's not Hemingway, people. It's a great story. Very, very few authors have the ability to be a great storyteller and also be a tremendous writer. Two off the top of my head in our genre, I would say are Stephen King and Dean Koontz. They are tremendous writers, which can write anything at any time that they want, and it makes sense. And they're tremendous storytellers. They keep you engaged in the story. Most of the time, some of the stories fall flat, but everybody does. You know, everybody, not everybody likes it. You're, you know, I don't like every band's favorite, you know, every album either that they ever did too. But the thing is, is that it's all about the story. That's all about how you send the reader from the beginning to the end. Are you cheating them? Are you taking them along with you? You know, are they having fun? Is it flowing right? Is it like a roller coaster or is it more like traffic? You know, are you stopping and starting? And they're like, oh my God, get going. Okay, get going. All right, get, get, get going. Or is it a roller coaster where they're just like, whoa, and there's like no gates and it's just blowing them through. That's what you want. And so I would say, yes, you have to have basic writing skills, of course, to be able to write, but focus on the story a lot more than making sure you have the comma in the right place and don't get yourself all crazy. Let, let, you know, let a copy editor or somebody, you know, find little things like that. You got to make sure the story's right and you got to make sure it makes sense and you got to make sure it's in the right order because sometimes they're not in the right order and you got to, and, and you got to flow it right. And that's the most important thing. That's what's going to get people to read you. So I wonder now, what do you think of, um, 
modern day suspense, like, you know, mystery, horror and thrillers and stuff, fiction, crime fiction, all of that, things that are being written today compared to how they were done way back in the in the 40s and 50s? Do you think it's better or do you think it's worse or what, how do you compare them? I, I think it's gotten lazy. I think writers have gotten lazy. I think the internet has made them lazy. I think that some things are too convenient. I think that when you look at shows like CSI, you look at shows like NCIS, you have that person who sits in the computer room who knows and finds everything in two seconds. That's not reality. And to me, that's, that's boring. Why? Because you, have no, you, you no longer have a character if you do that. If the information is at your fingertips, then what is the cop really supposed to do? He just calls up, you know, Joe in the back room and says, blah, 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 blah. And the guy goes, yep, here's all the information. Here's the camera feeds. I can get any camera around the world in two seconds and show you the video and everything. That's not reality. Or, or, or There would never be a, a crime not solved. So the thing is, is that, and while I know that that might make good story and good TV, it's, it, to me, it cheats the reader and it makes him feel like you're not smart enough to understand kind of how things are. And today, does that make sense? So I kind of feel that it's lazy because if a writer gets put into a hole in the 1980s and they're writing themselves into a corner, they might have to find a payphone. Well, now all he has to do is pull out a cell phone, hit Google, boom, done, information right there. He no longer has to do the grunt work. Um, that's why people, I think, still like, you know, like Jack Reacher's because he still does some grunt work. You know, he still has to go out and do the grunt work at times. He doesn't have somebody in the back room helping him. You, you know, Harry Bosch, to a point at early on, was that way too. It kind of, to me, it kind of got a little bit off kilter. One of the people that I'll give you a huge example of too, I love her writing and I think she's great, talked to her a couple times, is Patricia Cornwell. Her early case star peta books are amazing. Leland Gaunt to this day is still one of my favorite villains ever written in a book. I love him. But then when you start getting to book 11 and 12, Lucy takes over the story because she knows everything. And so it got boring. There was no more suspense anymore because you knew somebody was going to hit a button and find an answer. Case solved. There's the DNA or there's whatever. It's gone. So I think that writers have gotten lazy and I think readers have accepted the lazy, and I think that's where we are today. Um, but is it right or wrong? I mean, there's no right or wrong. It's just whatever entertainment is, whatever the entertainment value is. If Halloween came out today, would it be as scary as it was in 1978? Probably not, because people are more desensitized to that kind of slasher movie things. That's why all these horror movies now are so anti-up in the suspense and the violence and the absolute story of like you know like a get up or something like that that it has to go way beyond what it used to be in the 70s and the 80s and even the 90s that you know like when it came out and things like that would it be as scary today i don't know yeah. i don't know i asked dean Koontz that question when he interviewed him uh we were gracious enough he invited us to his house and we were down there we sat like three hours and you know talked with him and i said you know a book like the watchers or a book like you know the bad place if you wrote that book today, would it have the same effect as it did? And he said, no, it would not. It wouldn't have the same effect that it did back then because it would be more desensitized. It would have to be different. So I think that's what we've kind of gotten ourselves into as far as what literature goes. But that's the way it's gone through history. 
you know, would Shakespeare be as popular today as he was back then? Probably not. Probably wouldn't be. So I think it's just the signs of the times and how literature has worked itself through history, and this is just where we're living it. Well, and and I well, I sort of think that a lot of the uh, streaming services, you know, Netflix and and Amazon, you know, uh, Prime and all that stuff, uh, aren't aren't they getting a little bit formulated? Like these stories and series that keep coming out, aren't, aren't they kind of the same story over and over again? Hundred percent, yeah. 100%. We have another big thing we talk about, too, which is standalone versus series. I'm not a huge series guy unless I know there's an end. Um, you know, I'll bring up like Harry Potter because, you know, I knew there was going to be seven books. I knew there was going to be an end. So I knew there had to be an ending. I'm not a big fan of open-ended um, series. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a big fan of Alex Cross. I'm not a big fan of Reachers anymore I, because I love James Bond. But when you watch James Bond on, on the movies, are you in suspense at all if he's hanging from a cliff with one hand, he has nothing going on? Do you actually think that James Bond at the beginning of that movie is going to fall, die, and then it's over? No, he's not. Something's going to happen, and he's going to get out of it, he's going to be fine. So I'm not, I don't feel that suspense. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Anymore. You know what I mean? I don't yeah. get that. I, I, I'm like, whatever. I know he's not going to die. The one show that got to me that I thought was really, really good and out of the formula, and they've never done it again, which was really shocking that they never tried to do it again, was 24. Because besides Kiefer Sutherland, anybody in that show could die or get maimed at any time, any place. You never knew what was going to happen from episode to episode. And everything happened at the beginning of the hour, which always got you. But... It was still one of those shows that every episode, you actually didn't know what was coming. And that excited me because then, again, it had an ending. You had 24 episodes that was done because then the season, next season after really didn't have a lot to do with what it was there. It might have had a little bit to do with, well, Kiefer Sutherland has a drug issue now from season one to two because he did this or he's depressed because his wife died or whatever. Sorry, spoiler alert if you haven't seen season one. But... <laughs> Uh, if you haven't seen season one by now, then you're probably not going to watch yeah. it. But I'm just saying, so, if, so those types of things, I, I, I think are, I like those. But I'm not a fan of NCIS, CIS, and whatnot, because I have zero suspense. Everything always gets solved. It's always a nice, wrapped up in a nice little bow, and it's good to go. But I don't care about the characters' lives. That's the one thing that I'm different than a lot of people which is why I love Law and & Order, and I love Murder, She Wrote, and I love Columbo, because I don't know really two craps about any of their lives, except when SVU started getting into the personal stuff, I checked out, because I wanted to know the story of the time, whether you know, we caught the freak of the week. I wanted to know that story at that time, and I wanted to be able to know that if I turn on you know, Peacock now, which has all the Murder, She Wrote, and Law and & Orders, then I can sit there and I can go to season eight, episode four, click it. And I don't need to know anything that happened in one through seven because I'm just focused on this 60 minutes. But I agree with you that these are all formulaic and they're all the same. It's the exact same formula. Get the main character, run their thread through the entire series, have a little bit of controversy going on in each episode, but it's more about the character's journey than it is about the story anymore. That's where we've lost it. We've lost the villain is the one thing we've lost. There's no good villains anymore. Right. That's the one thing that's not written. There's no more Hannibal Lecters. You know, there's no more Leland Gaunt's. There's no more Sanjay's that James Patterson wrote way back when. It's now all about the hero. But the books are made with the villain because the tension when people always say, and I'll give you a thing for authors, is a big thing. You have to create tension on every page. There should be some kind of tension. 
Well, that tension comes from the villain. It doesn't come from the protagonist unless the tension is, oh my God, is my girlfriend pregnant? And is it mine? And it's like, well, that's Grey's Anatomy and I don't care. So that's, I, so that's why I do agree that I do believe a lot of formulas are right now in a lot of things, not just, you know, in movies, I think in, in streaming, I think in books, there's a lot of formula that's going on. Not that it hasn't been over the years, but it's a lot more than now. Well, I, they're probably forced to. There's, there's so much. Uh, they have to get so much out so fast, it seems like, because uh, all these services are trying to compete, you know. So uh, it's, a oh, lot yeah. of, it's a lot of work. But you know what, what I've noticed different about the formulas now is the writers are not taking notice. Like they're not doing the research. So they use phrases and things people talk like in 2020 as compared to, uh, let's say, 1960 when they're making the show about. Do you know what I'm saying? Like there's a oh, whole, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> whole verb. Yeah, you're kind of wearing the. Yeah, they're saying you have things the, like. You have the Jordans on in the 1960s show, and it's like, Jordan <laughs> went around the 1960s. You can't put those shoes on them. Yeah, yeah they yeah. missed the details. Yeah, and then they'll say yeah. things like, oh, sorry for your loss, or thank you for your service. They'll say terms that we use now, or you hear them all the time. But you didn't hear it in 1960. Right. You didn't hear it in 1920. Um, but they just, when they're writing the script, it seems like the, the, the verbiage is just 2020, not 1940. Like, it's, it's kind of weird. Right. And it throws me every time because um, then I start thinking that it's not real. So you have to start worrying about when they're describing um, where you're set at. Like when you talked about Patricia Cornwell, you know, the descriptions that she did for her, her settings were really, really good. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people now don't have that. They don't, they don't set it up. They don't describe enough detail about the time period. Do you know what I'm saying? So, right. So and this, I, yes, I think that some authors are very good at making the scene up character and some kind of don't care about it and i think the ones that make the setting of where they're at more of a character like if you're going to make you know east la you're going to write about something about east la when i I live in los angeles so east la is big area you're going to write about that well you're going to make that a character you're going to talk about the nuances and the things that are only familiar and only known in East LA. So people think that that's an actual like living, breathing kind of person that's in there because there's, there's only certain things that you can have in, you know, East LA, you have the gangs or the Crips and the Bloods and the things that are going on and the things that happen there. You can talk about, you can talk about the riots and the things of that nature. So it brings it to life. That's where some people lose it. Even if you create a fictional town, you know, like a Cabot Cove in Maine, it can still be, it can still be a character in some way. Cabot Cove was a character because it was slow. It was very, you know, laid back. It didn't have any big business. It was always trying to push big business out and never wanted to do that. And that's kind of what Cabot Cove was. And that's kind of what people got familiar with. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Well, that's sort of what I mean. I I sort of missed that. And and I don't think they realize. like if you're older and, and you've been around, you, you've seen and read a lot. But if you're mm-hmm. younger, like if you're if you're a 20-year-old right now, you only have 20 years of experience. 
you you don't know what it was like to live in the 70s or you know uh dial phones or you know you don't, there's a lot of things you never experienced <laughs> right. but well that see that i think that's the important part because there's so much that you experience in your life but someone that has never done that if they're picking up your book and you're you're telling a story if you don't have that context there you don't have that uh, they're going to put it in 2020. They're going to put it in what they know, mm -hmm. do you know? So they might yeah. miss what right. you're doing. So I think it's it's not enough, and I see too much of that. Well, I remember watching I remember watching Law and & Order, and it was season one, and my daughter was watching it with me a couple of years ago, and something happened, and they were on the street, and they were like, okay, we got to get back to the station. And um, are you still there? Yep. Okay, good. I thought I heard it. So, and they were like, I got to get back to the station. And my daughter's like, why is this calling the cell phone? And I said, honey, it's 1990. There's no cell phone. <laughs> and she's like, oh. I'm like, yeah, he literally does have to get back to the station or find a pay phone to call house, somebody call. Yeah. Like, they used to wear pagers. You remember pagers? Yeah. Yeah, there's the, and, you know, doctors used to have to turn them off in movie theaters. They used to, you used to hear, you know, that was like a thing, like turn your pager down. Now it's turn your cell phone down. So everything is, is evolving and everything evolves. Yeah. Um, but yeah. <laughs> is the writing, I guess, you know, to the original question, is the writing worse? I don't know if the writing is any worse. I just, I think it's different, but I do agree, but I do stick with my lazy. And I think that you've said the same thing too, is yeah. they're getting lazy and not researching what it was like in 1960, not researching what it was like in, you know, 1970, because 1970, I remember was a very hard time. I was born in 1970, but coming from like the eight, nine, 10 years old when Carter was president, you know, that was the huge energy crisis that was going on. I remember having to wait in line with my mom for like two hours to get gas. Right. That's what was going on. It was so much unrest in the country. I mean, Detroit was called like murder capital or whatever. Cleveland right. was the biggest <laughs> auto place where people were stealing cars. I mean, it was amazing stuff that was going on. But um, you, sh but you, sh if you didn't live it, you kind of you have to talk people about it that were living it to kind of get the sense of what it was, what the people were like. The other thing that was funny too, of course, there was no social media, so you really didn't know anybody's political or religion background unless you have unless you oh my god had to actually talk to them like yeah. you had to pick up a phone or look at them in the face and be like so who, who do you think you're gonna vote for this year like in 1980 reagan or carter or john anderson who do you think and you actually had to talk to them now you just go on you know facebook you go on instagram you go on twitter and you see 10 million people's opinion but you didn't have that before that, so that's different that's a big different thing well, and there's a lot of, uh, the internet's been a series of a lot of fake information too, right? There's a lot of, oh, of course, formulate it, you put it out there and, and, and even if only a certain percentage believe it, that's good enough. And that's a, not just politics. They, they do that in everything, right? It, do, it doesn't matter. Uh, there's money to be made by, um, sending out stories, I guess. And, uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's crazy, but that's also, that's two-sided because, like you said, there's a lot of lazy uh, journalism going on um, where people mm -hmm. just open up Google and then they print the story. They don't really go any further. Um, and I see that right. even in crime, crime books and stuff and true crime ones, too, because people don't, they actually don't go to the town. They don't meet the killer. They don't go out and meet 
victims. They don't, they don't get involved in the story. They just look through articles online and then put out a book. It, it's not enough. Right. No, and we just published a book that just came out um, September 8th, 9th, and it was with M. William Phelps, who's a huge true crime writer. You probably know who Matt Phelps yeah, is. I know him. He yeah. was on <laughs> Discovery. Right. And, he, and now he put out his, and so we just published his latest thriller book. It's his first, he, he marked it as his first fiction thriller book that he's written. So we just published that called The, um, the Girl Left Behind. But yeah, so he's going from true crime to fiction. And he's a huge research person. I mean, he was, you know, did ID Discovery Channel. He did that Dark Mind show where he was on site talking to the serial killer on the phone and doing the thing. So yeah, that, uh, but that's, that's kind of few and far between. I know, but the shows that take the extra mile are the ones that are in season 10 and 11. They're not, they didn't crash out in season one because people were like, well, this is boring. <laughs> right. Right. Well, it's, it's more involved. There's more, there's more detail to it. Yeah. And, and, and even with books, you can read them again, or you can go through the story again because you pick up new things. Uh, there, there's a lot of detail. I, mean, I am hooked right now. I'm hooked on Hulu on this thing called unsolved. It's like Buzzfeed unsolved stories. It's amazing. I love it. It's a great thing if you people have that. They go through all these different stories. Some of them are only ten minutes long. Some of them are thirty minutes long. Where they get into the case, they get into the stuff, and they t- and it just cuts right to the chase and it gets right into it. And it's wonderful. We've been watching it for like the last four nights. We just found it. I'm like, I don't really binge watch, but this is so easy because it's like I said, some are ten or fifteen, twenty, thirty minutes depending on what it is. Like we watched Jack the Ripper last night, which was thirty-seven minutes long, and we saw another one which was like fifteen minutes long on some smaller crime they're wonderful stories and some of them i didn't even know about but those they do it well they do it very well i mean they have tons of research that there's into it suspects yeah. and things that you didn't even know about places that you didn't really hear about in the case and this and that's why it's been around for probably i think there was 10 or 11 episodes that like 50 episodes on these things right um and i'm like that's why it was so great so what do you think so uh, so why did something like I this? I think a lot. Yeah. Well, no, but when we go back, why, why was Dark Shadows so popular? What, what was the key elements in Dark Shadows to make them such a cult? Boy, I tell you, I, I, I'm familiar with the show, but I didn't get into the show. But I am familiar with the one. That's the one also that was remade with Michelle Pfeiffer, Johnny Depp as the TV right, show, right? right the right. movie, right? Yeah. Show, right. As far, yeah. Now, as far as the show, that's kind of what I found. I, that's, I'll tell you the truth. That's when I found out about there was even a show. I didn't even realize it was a show. So I'm not a big commentator on that one because I don't know that one as well. Um, but here's the thing about, but it, that was more set like the Edgar Allan Poe style, I would think, right? That's kind of what it reminded me of a little bit. It's kind of that kind of vain, very dark. Um, but the thing about those shows are, I think, was the plot was a lot more intricate than it is, like I said, than it is today, where today yeah. it's like more about how intricate can you make the characters. Right. Well, you, you know, know was, well- when they made that, that's they, what I think. Well, because when they made that in the in the '60s, and so, they had they had like two cameras in a room, so those actors mm-hmm. and the writing had to be good. You had to have it work; otherwise, it wasn't. You could it right. wasn't. You weren't relying on effects, or uh, you know, 
action. Oh, was, yeah. You were stuck in a room and you had to make what you say work, you know? Um, right. I, and I don't think the writing was lazy as much as it was back then. I think people were more put their foot to the fire to make sure that things were either funny or they worked um, or they were very convincing and they worked. But today's day and age, some of the it's almost like this, like if you're if you're stuck and you don't need a joke. All right. Do a body function joke, make him burp or fart or do something. And we'll just throw it in there because we don't know what else to do. Um, it's kind of like, here's a, here's a good analogy. I'll give you a great analogy where I think the writing has really gone off the rails is like the show Lost. That was the perfect name for a show because they were completely lost. It was very popular at the beginning, but then when you kind of got over the fine, okay, fine, we, don't, we finally know everybody's background because that mattered. Now, what the hell is on the island and then it and then it turns out that they were all dead at the beginning. Like you, they 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 sat there in that room and figured we have nowhere else to go. We wrote ourselves so badly into this hole. We have to come out and say the whole thing was a dream. Yeah. <laughs> when you do that, that means we had zero ending for this show. <laughs> we yeah. had no idea what to do. Yeah. The other ones that get on my nerves. And I'm going to bring this one up as like heroes. And I'm just, the only reason I say is because these shows, these are shows that ask you a question. And I like Blacklist. Blacklist was a great show for this one too. It asked you a question. Who is uh, Reddington and why is, what is his relationship to this FBI agent? Why does he want her? Well, once you answered that question, what was left of the show but just another crime show it was there was, no, there was nothing else there you answered the question who he was to who she was and what he why what the relationship was and there was just another crime show that just went way off the rails like what what it's like today is nothing what it was like when it started it's not even in the same ballpark of what the show is two totally different shows so it's almost like they have an idea and they're trying to catch you into this idea like, oh, you know, the guy is, he's this FBI agent and why aren't you with this, you know, serial killer looking guy? And what does he know? And, blah, blah. and then you find out and you're like, oh, okay. But they're hoping that you're so entrenched in the show that you keep watching. And I'm like, yeah, I'm out. I'm done. I don't care. Heroes was the same way. At the end of season one, when you stop the nuclear, again, sorry, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. <laughs> when you stop the nuclear explosion at the end of that book, that was what their goal was. What was left from that point forward? Now, now that you accomplished that number one goal that they were supposed to do, well, then it went to season two and season three, and no one watched because it was stupid. Right. Because the characters got stupid because they didn't know where to go from there. So sometimes networks do themselves an injustice because the show gets popular and then they try to keep it running, when really, maybe it's just a one-season show and the story's over. Sometimes that's all there is to the story. There's no more. That's it. Yeah. Overkill. That's where the editing has to come in. <laughs> but they can't because they need to make the money. Instead of telling those writers, you guys just did a great show on Heroes, write me another 24 and give me another 24 episodes for something totally different. And you know who did that one right? It was American Horror Story. Right. They did it right. They said, that's the story. That's it. The season's over. We're going to give you something else next season. And right. people love it. And it keeps going. But no one picked up on that, on that kind of 
story and that kind of show, because that's the only one out there that I know of, could be wrong, that I know of that does it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some things don't translate well. I mean, the zombie apocalypse, too, thing now, you know, um, talk about overkill. <laughs> it's like vampires. I mean, yeah, it's it's overkill. It's um, yeah. it's too common and it's too too easy. Right, um, right. I mean, you know, I mean, who, who wrote it way back when? From George Romero, what The Living Dead, and this and yeah. that. I mean, it's been written ten thousand different ways, but it all but it all ends up being the same thing. It's all it's always some kind of disease or radiation that turns them into blood suckers, and then <laughs> you're just killing a bunch of zombies. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's, that's basically what ends up being. Yeah, it becomes gore. Um, Perry Mason. Have you not seen Perry it? Mason? Have you seen the new one? I've not seen the new one. I've seen all the old ones. I've not seen the new one. Someone told me, and I, I that's because there's so many things to watch and read and do everything else, yeah. that it's supposedly a prequel to before he became like Perry Mason. Is that right? Yeah, it's the original. It's the original okay. cases. Um, so, you know, like, but there's no Paul. Uh, yeah, there is. Uh, well, you just have to understand if you read the original ones, uh, the characters grew into who they are on the series from the sixties. Uh, but mm -hmm. they cleaned it up a lot on TV, like, okay. you know, like uh, Raymond Byrne, all that was all cleaned up, but there's a reason why him and Della and everybody had this, the, their position that they had or a situation it's because they they had their own things going on, and it wouldn't be acceptable in the sixties, uh, right? Because I mean, she Della is okay, a lesbian, yeah. right? And and it's not something you do True. in nineteen sixty on TV, right? So they they. And made that's it. funny because when I was first watching it, I yeah. never knew that. <laughs> yeah, and well, you see, they had to clean it up. And actually, in Perry Mason, it was before he was a lawyer, but he becomes a lawyer. But he's the detective at the time. But he got kicked out of the army for having a homosexual affair. He had one of the stars. So th now they that's kind of funny since Raymond Burr was gay. Yeah, and no one knew it when he was in the show. <laughs> so, so it's kind of unusual. So, so in a way, when you go back to the original and then you see Raymond Burr's version, you realize why they always just have Della and Burr sort of flirting, but there's never any relationship. Do you know what I mean? Like they don't, they don't oh, even, they don't yeah, even, yeah, gotcha. they can't go down that road because they would. They always remind me more of like brother, sister sometimes at times, really. Yeah. And I think that's kind of how they had like to, a, well, they had to play it that way because, yeah. you know, they weren't going to be. So the new one, yeah. So the new one is, is a really well cool. done. Cool. I'll check it out. Yeah, you should. There's, there's some, you understand the characters better when you get through that. You'll understand because uh, I watched the the sixty series as well, but you'll understand okay. who these people are better than um, mm -hmm. what they showed you in that series. Because you know that's one of those series where you realize you went through all those years of Perry Mason, and you never really explored those characters. You know what I mean? No, it was because it was it was because it was more about just the case of the week, right? And it was you know can you get him off? And he only and he and he only failed once. Yeah. But it was like you wanted to know. First of all, it was always a mystery. You knew that whoever was accused didn't do it, but who did it? So it was still a murder mystery. You're still trying to figure out who did it. And yeah. that's, what, that's what I love. That's what I always – Matlock was like the new Perry Mason version. Yeah. And I loved it. I loved Matlock. 
But you the see, same that's, way. But you see, there's a way of doing that where you don't even have to. You can watch ten years of Perry Mason, but at the end of it, you don't know him much better than you did at the beginning. Nope, I don't. And sometimes that was refreshing for me, just yeah. because I'm like, yeah, but it was. But you know, just I just thought it was. I didn't. I never really thought about it because shows were never written that way when I was watching shows. Yeah. Um, unless it was something, you know, I guess it kind of started more in the eighties where it was more like cheers and places like that, where there was some of those underlying themes that would go through those shows that you were watching. Yeah. Um, but they turned it into comedy or they made it something that was, they made it, they made it funny, you know, it was yeah. a funny thing of like, why? And they kind of did it with moonlighting and then they jumped the shark when they kind of had them sleep with each other. And then they tried to play that one off as a dream. And it's like, what do you dream? People? <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> Too many dreams going on. Right. That's, that's right. the uh, quick option. You need to get out of it. while that's it's a dream. A quick one. Yeah. I tell you. And I will say one thing. And Stephen King pissed me off in the stand. Yeah. And I'll say that. I think he got lazy when he was just like, screw it. Just light the bomb and just be done with it. Again, spoiler alert. But it's like, at the end, it's like, but he, but that ending was horrible. That was a horrible ending. He cheated the, he cheated the heck out of me, yeah. is what he did. Yeah. I'm like, dude, come on. Like, and we're not even going to go into the Dark Tower series about how I think that ending was, was really cheating, but it makes sense in a way, but it was still cheating because I won't, I won't spoil that one, but I'm no. just saying the ending for that one got me on that one too. But it is, it is something. If you have to explain your ending yeah. in the back <laughs> of the book, then yeah, you know what? Then you realize that not everybody's going to get it and you probably didn't do it right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, but it's funny how um, all of a sudden you put someone on that level. They can't let you down. Like they, uh, you, you get an expectation. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and and when they drop the ball, sort of, you know it, you know, it's, uh, it's right. pretty amazing. So, so what's, right. next? Like what's, said, next? Every... what's next for you in suspense? Well, well, I mean, we do the same thing every time. I mean, like I said, so we have our Nothing Good Happens After Midnight anthology coming out um, November 17th. And you can buy it now. It's pre-ordered now with Jeffrey Deaver. And like I said, Lenwood Barkley and Reese Bowen, Heather Graham, uh, Paul, Paul Kemper Coast, I and mean, we got a bunch of authors in there, so you check that one out. Nothing that happens after midnight. We also have another anthology we're doing next year, which will come out in October. That'll be with Catherine Coulter. Uh, that'll also be with like Tosca Lee and JT Ellison, Kelly Armstrong. That's a really important one for us because we are donating 10% of the proceeds to breast cancer awareness. It comes out next October. So that's something that we're looking forward to. Uh, we know we still publish. You can always find things out at suspensemagazine.com. But, you know, our magazine goes out. We're probably going to do a little bit less PDFs and more information daily on the website. So things will be updated more daily instead of the, you know, PDF that we send out uh, five, six times a year of our magazine that goes out and does that. So we're going to try to do that might change a little bit. But we're just trying to evolve and get as, as much information as we can to people, you know, read as many books as we can, do as many reviews as we can, and just try to find as many um, – you know, fans for authors that I guess don't have as many fans. You know, we we started with the premise of give every author a voice because not every author has a voice to try to give them a voice to find new fans. And that's kind of what we've tried to keep doing. So any authors that are looking to, you know, submit an article or want to write a short story or any aspiring authors, or even if you are published and you have a new book and you want to send it, 
you know, editor at suspensemagazine.com, which is my direct email address, is the best place to start. And you can send it to me, and I will send it out to our review team, or I'll get, you know, I always get back to you and I always let you know. But that's kind of what we are. I mean, we're just we're just trying to the the suspense mystery thriller horror genre is so big to try to put it into one little place is ridiculous. So there's we're we just we just want to be one place that you go because we know that you need to go to several. We just want to be one place, and hopefully you find out you know, 75% of your information there, and you go find 25% someplace else. But that's kind of the goal, to just try to give us authors and readers and fans as much exposure to the genre as we can. Fantastic. Our guest has been yeah. Johnny Robb, Suspense Magazine. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Al. You have a good one. I appreciate it. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.